A warm welcome to the Hertie School. Hertie School. The Hertie School. The Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School in Berlin. Um, I'm going to introduce my speaker and hand over to her directly. Um, as I said, it's a great honor to introduce her. Um, Itandaya Chume is Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law and was formerly Faculty Director of the UCLA Law Promise Institute for Human Rights. Um, she's also a Research Associate at the African Center for Migration and Society at the University of its Blatterbsrand, and she was also formerly um, a researcher at the um, uh, um, Supreme Court of, um, or the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Um, her scholarship is probably known to many of you, um, she's written um, a really, I think, groundbreaking article on mi migration as decolonization in 2019, um, and early articles also on structural xenophobic discrimination against re refugees. Um, and also, I should add a wonderful chapter in the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of International Refugee Law on race, refugee, and international law. Uh, we've invited her also not only as a scholar, but as um, the current holder of the uh, Special Rapporteurship on contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. Um, and she's the first woman to serve in this role since its creation in 1993. Um, I was rather uh, surprised to see that uh, Tendai, you've only held this uh, role since November 2017, because I think you've written 12 uh, thematic reports since you started um, on, on many crucial issues, including uh, the one that you're going to speak about, um, I gather, a little bit this evening, the one that just came out on digital borders. But of course, you've also written on um, reparations, um, on structural injustice, um, on the links between um, migration control and race discrimination, um, and on a host of other crucial issues. Um, so we're greatly looking forward to your uh, contribution this evening and um, I'll hand over to you directly and see you again afterwards for the Q&A. Okay. Thank you so much, Catherine, for that generous introduction and, and for the invitation to, to be able to join you all at the at the Hurti School. Um, so what I'm going to do is speak a little bit about just initially race and human rights and then transition to the title of my presentation, which is um, Racial Borders. And I'll be sharing some ideas from an academic paper that I'm working on, but then we'll also conclude with some highlights from a recent, my most recent thematic report to the General Assembly, which touches on um, some of the ideas that are related to the academic research I've been doing. And I'll talk a little bit about what it means to even be special rapporteur. Um, Michal, if you could um, start my slides. Thank you so much. All right. Um, so hopefully you can all see the slides. And I don't know if it's in full slide mode, but I will assume that you can until somebody else tells me um, otherwise. So I, I want to start off um, by talking about something um, that Deborah Thompson, who's an international relations scholar, has described as um, racial aphasia. And I want to describe how I see racial aphasia in the context of the field of human rights. And I have a slide here that 
um, gives you a definition of, of what racial aphasia is. Apologies for there being so much text, but it's a really important um, quotation. And so Deborah Thompson, writing in the field of, of um, international relations, diagnosed her field as suffering from a condition that she calls um, racial aphasia. And she says, this is not the same as amnesia, which in indicates some unfortunate series of events that led to the unintentional forgetting of how the modern world system was founded on and, and continues as a hierarchical racial order. Racial amnesia obscures the power involved in purposeful evasion, suggesting that like a B-movie plot, we must have accidentally fallen, hit our heads and forgotten our racist past. Amnesia disavows intent. Aphasia on the other hand indicates a calculated forgetting, an obstruction of discourse, language and speech. And she goes on to say that international bodies and states alike profess normative and legal commitments to racial equality, while racial stratification persists both between the developed and the developing worlds and within most, uh, within most if not all, racially heterogeneous uh, societies. And she goes on to say that white supremacy is a global institution and racism as a pervasive social structure are obscured. As a result, racism is instead reduced to abhorrent individualistic acts or attitudes. The promise of the post-racial society is realized not through reparations or substantive equality, but in the imposition of race-free discourses that keep international and domestic orders, um, domestic racial orders firmly entrenched. So this is a pretty extensive um, quotation. You know, Deborah Thompson makes this observation in 2013 about the field of international relations. Um, but I want to talk about how her observation remains valid and applicable to the global human rights system um, within the United Nations and also among the most influential human rights um, organizations and institutes um, in the world. And I would even say, for those of you who've studied um, international human rights in law school, you might think about whether or not your experience was one that was characterized by racial aphasia. I teach international human rights law and have been stunned by how few textbooks actually center issues to do with racial subordination and racial discrimination. Um, and so with few exceptions, what you see within the global human rights system, within the United Nations and in different parts of the world, is that with few exceptions, they participate in neglect that amounts to a calculated forgetting of white supremacy as a global institution and, race, and racism as a pervasive social structure. And they reduce the problem of racism to these individual acts of bad actors, these bad attitudes of bad apples that can be isolated. And this places an emphasis on punishing or condemning individual acts of prejudice rather than undoing structures of systemic um, injustice. And I want to, to um, very early on in my talk, give some content to what I mean by race when I use the term race. I know that this is a term that is um, polarizing. In some contexts, it's even taboo. And this is something that I've had to confront in my work as special um, rapporteur. There's places in the world where the word race is considered to be offensive, out outdated, and inherently um, divisive. You know, So for example, a few years ago, France removed from, um, from, from its constitution the word race and replaced it um, with sex on the argument that there's no, there are no different races and it's outdated to speak of um, different races. So I want to be clear what I mean when I uh, refer to, to race in my um, talk. 
Oops, I went too far in my slides. Let's go on back. Okay, this is it. So I'm relying here on the definition of race that's offered by Ian Haney Lopez and that's used by many other critical race scholars, but it's basically a definition of race that refers to race as the historically contingent social system of meaning that um, attaches to elements of morphology and ancestry, right? So this is um, a rather complicated sounding, but essentially there's a number of things that I want to highlight about this definition. First, it unequivocally rejects scientifically and morally discredited notions of biological races, right? And instead, it recognizes race as a powerful social construction. It recognizes that the social construction of race is informed by physical features and um, lineage, but not because these features or lineages function as um, are, are a function of racial variation, but because societies invest morphology and ancestry with social meaning. And at the same time, race is by no means simply or even mostly about physical attributes such as color. Really, it's about the social, the legal, the political and the economic meaning of being categorized as black, white, brown or any other um, racial designation. In some parts of the world, what I'm referring to as race might be referred to as ethnicity. But I think it's important to pull apart race and ethnicity as concepts, even though they overlap. Ethnicity typically puts an emphasis on, on cultural variation and, and cultural traits. Um, but, you know, you might think about somebody who is living in Europe and they are black and originally from Senegal and somebody who's living in Europe and they're black and they're originally from Zimbabwe, right? Both of them are racialized as black and maybe even racialized as African, but ethnically they come from very different um, ethnic groups, you know, within Senegal and even within Zimbabwe. Those two, the, the, the ethnic categorization there is really broad. And then within Senegal and within Zimbabwe, you can have further ethnic variation while nonetheless having people belong to the same racialized um, categories. Um, I also want to highlight that there's a tendency to, to treat race mostly as an identity attribute. So, so a way that somebody individually identifies and at the same time to ignore the ways in which race operates as a structure of power, according to which uh, privileges and rights are allocated. And so the second definition that I have on my slide that I want to emphasize before I go further is this um, understanding of race as structural. And the scholarship of Anibal Kihana reminds us that race today is the product of centuries-long um, colonial intervention and exploitation, during which race became the fundamental criterion of distribution of the world's population into ranks, places, and roles, and society's structure um, of power. And so, so what he's emphasizing is that in the colonial context, race structured rights and privileges on hierarchical terms determined by white supremacy. And, therefore, and we might think about how even though formal decolonization has occurred in most of the world, race persists as a neocolonial structure, one that still allocates benefits and privileges and advantages of some and disadvantages of others, largely along the same geopolitical and racial lines that characterize the European colonial um, project. You might think about um, how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted different societies. In the United States, for example, it's become very clear that um, racial and ethnic minorities have been disparately impacted and unharmed by that pandemic in a way that I spe think speaks vividly to the idea of race as a structure along which benefits and privileges are, are allocated. And I want to be clear that 
the account that I'm giving of race is by no means a totalized account of it, right? There's different ways of understanding what race is, what race does, um, depending on where you are in the world. And racial discrimination looks very different depending on where you are. So racial discrimination in, in Germany is going to operate differently from racial discrimination in the United um, States, in the United States, for example. But this is not to say that there aren't commonalities of or, or common threads and structures that we can talk, talk about in a transnational um, way. And it's it's those transnational dimensions um, that I'm going to be trying to, to pull apart um, in my analysis. And so I would say that in my experience as, a, as an academic, as a, as, a, as a UN independent expert, um, my sense is that um, there is a neglect of this structural and historicized understanding of race and racial subordination. And this neglect is, is endemic to mainstream human rights discourse. And sometimes it manifests as what you might have heard described as colorblindness or a commitment to not seeing race, where this is considered, uh, considered as a positive or fair intervention seeking to treat everybody the same way. So part of what I do as special rapporteur is I travel to different countries, I do country visits, and I evaluate how well they're complying with their equality and non-discrimination obligations. And in many of the parts of the world I visit, I'll encounter officials or different actors who say, you know, we're a colorblind society, we don't see race. Um, and this kind of uh, inability to really um, confront racial justice and racial equality issues becomes a handicap. It becomes um, part of the problem of trying to um, address um, a human rights. And it's something that I think all human rights advocates, all human rights scholars and students have to be able um, to confront um, in more direct ways. So I could talk at length about the causes of racial aphasia and human rights and, and humanitarian advocacy, but with the time that we have, I think I simply want to put this on the table as a really important um, issue and then focus the rest of my lecture on borders and migration and really narrow in or hone in on racial aphasia in the context of, of migration and refugees, focusing somewhat on, on Europe in light of the location of, of this lecture, or at least where you most of you are. I'm imagining that most of you um, are, in, are in Germany. And I should note that many of the ideas that I'm introducing here, I'm writing about as well, but you could make analogous arguments about different parts of the world. And so even though I'll be focusing on Europe, keep in mind that I think many of these arguments apply to different parts of the world. So. This slide shows you um, uh, the Aquarius, and, and this photo was taken in June 2018. And the Aquarius, it was a search and rescue um, sea boat jointly operated by two international NGOs. And it rescued, on this occasion in June 2018, rescued uh, 629 African refugees and migrants off the coast of Libya. And it was denied permission to dock in Italy and in Malta, the closest two countries. And this is a familiar story, I'm sure, for those of you who are based in Europe. Um, at the time, the, the Italian interior minister, whose party was successfully elected on a platform of a strong anti-immigrant um, or even xenophobic platform, defended his country's decision as a justified response to illegal immigration. And the French president publicly criticized Italy's rejection of the Aquarius refugees and migrants. But even in that criticism, that criticism belied similarly aggressive 
anti-immigrant and refugee policies that even more centrist European nations have adopted, including through the European Union as a body. And as many of you will know, the European Union has a policy of cooperation with Libyan coast guards to prevent migrants from leaving Libyan shores. Um, and a number of European countries have taken steps to prohibit disembarkation um, of migrant ships and even to criminalize humanitarian support for those in peril at sea. Um, and the European uh, approach to migration governance has been subject to very strong critique, I will say, including among human rights advocates within and beyond Europe. But this critique, especially among advocacy organizations pushing for more humane approaches to migration, I would say a notable absence has been a racial justice critique. And, and you might say that this has changed a little bit in the last um, you know, six months or so with the racial justice uprisings, I'll say something about in, in towards the end of my talk, but largely the, the critique of, of the, the EU's migration governance tactics in the Mediterranean um, have, haven't really uh, grappled with the racial justice dimensions of what's happening there. Instead, there's been a focus on due process rights of refugees and migrants, their inhumane treatment and dangers and pressures that force people to move in the first place. Um, and even legal scholars, I would say, have largely failed to engage the racial justice dimensions or implications of the policies that are at stake. Um, and I want to pause for a second to explain why it's important to think about what human rights is doing and saying in relation to migration, not just in Europe, um, but in the world more generally. And so if you, if you look at the global system, um, it's the language of human rights that anchors rights-based critique of borders. And so to give you a more recent example, in, in 2018, UN member states adopted the Global Compact on Migration. And the first and this, this was the first international agreement governing um, migration um, generally. And in that uh, document, basically UN member states um, affirmed that it's a it's an instrument that's based on international uh, human rights law and it upholds non-regression and, and discrimination. And it also affirmed a commitment to eliminate all forms of discrimination, including racism, xenophobia, and intolerance um, against migrants and, and, and their families. And so within this compact, we see how international human rights law and, and principles today are involved or are intended to provide normative anchors for just migration law and policy all over the world. We know that the international refugee law regime does so as well, but it does so only for people who qualify um, for the refugee uh, definition. And if you're interested in how we might think about racial uh, aphasia in the context of the Refugee Convention, I'm happy to talk about that during Q&A. But what I'm trying to highlight here is that um, the international human rights discourse is one that matters and that will only matter more if people continue to move as they're doing now. And for human rights scholars and advocates, it's really urgent for us to articulate exactly what a human rights approach to migration entails, including where racial justice and equality um, are concerned. But you might ask, okay, so what, what does racial justice, what do racial equality have to do with borders and migration? And I want to take this question on by taking a, a brief look at history, the colonial, colonial history of borders, and then coming back to the present. And I'm going to have to go through this fairly fast because I see that I'm already running um, out of time. So I want to speak briefly about the colonial history of contemporary borders and how international law and legal theory have played crucial roles in defending international mobility 
when this mobility has been that of whites and Europeans, and, and conversely firmly constrained this mobility when non-whites have attempted to exercise freedom of movement on their um, own terms. And the picture that emerges from this colonial history is that the history of freedom of international movement is unfortunately the history of racialized allocation of privilege of international mobility. And um, as Catherine mentioned, I have an article called Migration as Decolonization, in which I highlight that it's important to, to remember that between the 19th and first half of the 20th century alone, um, approximately 62 million Europeans emigrated to colonial territories across the world. And historians note that the scale and consequences of even just British empire migration between 1815 and the 1816 and the, and the 1960s explains much about the modern world. So today, the most commonly contested and even widely opposed category of international migrant is that of the economic migrant. And it's a term that typically is used to refer to to those who move in search of better economic or other opportunities, it's a racialized term, right? And so if you think about the, the image of the Aquarius, when we think about um, economic migrants, typically the image that is projected to us from media is, is, is one that is a racialized image. Um, and usually the term economic migrant is one that's used to undercut claims to legitimate admission and inclusion, which is reserved for other groups um, who, are, who are not put in the category of economic migrant. But you might think about how during the, the, the colonial period, it was European colonial migrants who were the quintessential and original economic migrants. And in, in striking contrast to the mortal costs that international law imposes on non-European economic migrants today, European colonial um, economic migrants benefited from an international legal and imperial regime that facilitated, encouraged, and celebrated white um, migration. And so in, in my work and other people, scholars have really written about the way that these migration regimes um, emerged. And I'm going to skip through some of the details, the historical details that I was going to give you um, because uh, of time constraints. But I want to highlight the work of socio-legal scholar Radhika Mongia. Um, and in her work on colonial Indian migration, she shows how, in fact, it was the relatively modest increase in the numbers of free Indian mi migrants, right? So this is during the um, uh, 19th century, the arrival of about, of about 2,000 Indians in Canada in, in 1906 generated racial anxiety within Canada at a time when explicitly um, racial restrictions on mobility stood in an untenable tension with notions of common British um, subjecthood in, in, in different parts of the British Empire. And as a means of restricting migration of free Indians to Canada in 1907, um, there was a, an introduction of or a proposal introduced of a passport system according to which free Indians would only be admitted if they possessed a passport, but passports would only be selectively issued by the colonial Indian administration so as to curtail forms of international migration. And this system became law in 1915 um, when departing British India without a passport if you were Indian became a criminal um, offense. And I highly encourage you to um, look into the work of Radhika Mongia, who shows how passports, which today we consider you know, neutral technology of mig migration governance in this colonial period functionally emerged as crucial technology that achieved racialized exclusion without explicit reliance um, on, on race. 
Um, more generally, the period between the mid 19th and the earliest 20th century is the period that gave rise to the foundational international migration regimes that dominate the world today. And in that period, immigration restrictions essentially implemented um, a regime of racial segregation on an international scale. I want to show a slide um, that is from um, a law that was passed in uh, the colony of Victoria in 1855, which would later become um, the Federation of Australia. And um, this very early definition of immigrant, I think makes plain what today is, is more hidden, which is that its very definition is one that is um, um, racialized. And so in, in 1855, the law defined an immigrant as any male native of, of China or its dependencies or any islands in the Chinese sea or any person born of Chinese parents. And so what you see is that Europeans who may have been coming from different parts of, of Europe and even um, uh, Europeans who had settled in the US, if they were to travel to, to Victoria in this period, they wouldn't be considered immigrants. It was very much tailored to be um, a racialized um, designation. And if you're interested in more of this history and how it plays itself out all the way through the decolonial um, period, I'm happy to offer recommendations of readings that you um, might um, follow on. So I'm going to skip very quickly in the interest of time to how we should be understanding the way that international migration and international mobility work today. And the reality is that un unfortunately we live in a world of migration governance technologies and regions that achieve racialized exclusion and containment in ways that preserve dynamics originating in the colonial era. As I mentioned earlier, the illegal immigrant is a racialized subject the world over. And whether we're talking about illegal immigrants in the United States, in Europe, or even um, South Africa, illegality of migration in its most contested and polarizing form typically implicates the movement um, of non-whites. And, and race is absolutely an, a factor in determining who's um, subject to xenophobic um, backlash. It's not the only factor that is implicated. Sometimes xenophobic backlash focuses on ethnic origin. And you might think about um, people from, from Eastern Europe and their treatment in, in Western Europe. You might think about Roma. You might think about the role of gender, the role of class. I don't mean to say that race is the only thing that is salient, but it is to highlight that it is one of, of the factors um, that is at play. So much so that you might think of, um, I want to argue, race itself as a border, right? So I think it's helpful to conceptualize race as a border where borders are sites of enforcement of exclusion. If you think about border walls, if you think about um, the airport and the technology that exists there, the point of, of much of that um, technology is to enforce exclusion of those who don't belong and, and permit inclusion of, of those who do belong. And I would say non-whiteness today operates as a site or a means of enforcement um, of exclusion. And so you might think about... Um, racial profiling in, in the immigration context, which I think of as, as very um, uh, telling. In one of my country visits, I visited the Kingdom of Morocco and 
really felt very heavily the way that race operates as a border. You know, traveling south from the south of Morocco up to the north, in the south of the country, there were definitely sub-Saharan Africans in larger numbers. But as you move north, there were fewer and fewer in public places, um, to a great extent because of the pressure that Europe is putting on Morocco to keep um, sub-Saharan Africans from crossing the Mediterranean to go to Europe. And so racial profiling um, is very heavily utilized in immigration enforcement, such that even um, sub-Saharan African or other black Moroccans who have um, formal legal entitlement to, to, to remain in Morocco are caught up in these sweeps of, of immigration enforcement that rely on racial profiling, such that their race actually overrides their legal documentation um, to be in the, in the country. So the, the photo that I started my slides um, out with was taken at a funeral in, in November 2017 when media outlets reported the death of 26 Nigerian girls um, and women aged between 14 and 18 whose bodies were found floating in the Mediterranean um, Sea. And there were many more individuals on the boat that carried these girls, including some survivors. Um, and only two of the 26 were identified by the time the Italian government buried them. One woman whose name was Marianne Shako and another one whose name was Asata. To Asara. And one of the survivors who was interviewed stated that the motivations for most of the women on the boat from Nigeria was their, was their search for jobs. And it's important to note that Europe, like much of the first world, is powered by an economic system that is predicated on labor migration and arguably even unauthorized labor migration. But rather than provide legal pathways to this type of migration, European nations, often with the support of African governments, their response has been to double down on the securitization of European borders um, and even of African borders to keep migrants out. And in the context of passports, visa regimes, border externalization and securitization policies that in effect privilege first world international mobility, the reality is that the mortal cost of international mobility is, is actually a largely non-white um, problem. And I want to be clear that when I talk about the first world, I'm talking here in, in kind of geopolitical terms where that term applies to former colonizing nations and really highlighting that it's, it is former colonizing nations to, the, to a great extent and their allies. It is citizens of those countries who get to move um, more freely than those from other parts of the world and that race itself is a factor in determining who gets to move and who doesn't move in, in the world that we live in now. And I would say that um, Nicholas Dejanova uh, puts the point very perfectly. He says, Europe's deadly borders must be understood as racial borders. The physical barricading and even more lethal policies of Europe's borders likewise signify an abundantly racialized affair. Rather than perceiving the brute racial post-coloniality of, of European borders as, merely ex as a merely exclusionary matter, it is vital that we discern the way that this profoundly racialized system of immigration and asylum operates, in fact, in perfectly um, predictable ways as a machine of inclusion, albeit a form of inclusion that is always one of racialized, post-colonial, illegalized labor subordination. There's a lot to unpack in that, in that um, quotation, and I highly recommend his analysis, which I would say is a sociological and a political critique. Um, but one that also requires legal articulation, including through the language of human rights, if the framework of human rights is remain um, is to remain um, credible. And so 
part of, of, of the challenge, I think, is for us to think about racial borders as territorial and political border regimes that disparately curtail mobility and political incorporation on a racial basis and that sustain international migration and mobility as privileges. And to think about the ways that law can and cannot provide um, a powerful critique of the racial border regimes that we have and to kind of be able to develop a discourse that would mean that we could call out the injustices in the, in the Mediterranean, for example, as one that rely on racialization of different territories and different peoples in order um, to, to, to give them um, effect. Um, for some, you know, they'll argue that when we think about, about the, the sovereignty justifications that are used to consolidate the regimes that the EU is consolidating and that result in the deaths of, of those Nigerian girls, that, that some of these policies are defensible because there is this right to exclude the sovereign entitlement that everyone, every nation has to exclude um, non-nationals. And I think that such arguments, especially where Europe is concerned, can only be sustained by a profoundly ahistorical analysis of Europe's relationship to Africa and other parts of the world. And I've argued in migration as, as decolonization for a different theory of sovereignty um, and, and one that would have to account for the failures of formal decolonization and recognize the persisting interconnection that, be, that exists between um, those nations. But my point here is, is that the front lines of white supremacy and racism in Europe and in the global governance of migration generally are by no means confined to explicit racism and, and xenophobia that we see in the far right. So typically when people think about you know, racist and xenophobic border policies, they think about individuals or administrations like the Trump administration or Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary. But it's important that we include institutional frameworks, political and, and, and legal discourses that are facially race neutral, but that continue to operate according to racialized um, logics that result, um, and that means that when we're thinking about racial justice and equality, the threat is both one that's embodied in, in these kind of far-right discourses, but also in liberal discourses and regimes that we treat as largely um, race neutral. So having, having rushed rather quickly through the arguments that I, I think are at the center of this idea of racial borders, I want to speak very briefly about a report that I have just um, that I just presented to the to the General Assembly um, earlier this um, year. Actually, it was earlier this month in November, though today might be December 1st, so it was November. And as I was mentioning at the beginning, and as, as Catherine mentioned, I serve also as the, the Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. And what that basically means is that I'm an independent expert who gives guidance to the UN on racism and, and xenophobia on, on key issues um, that they need to be paying attention to and provides guidance on how international human rights standards apply um, in that context. So my latest thematic report focused on digital borders. And this concept of digital borders is not one that I came up with. Social um, scientists have been talking about digital borders for a while. But in the report, 
I refer to digital borders as borders whose infrastructure and processes increasingly rely on machine learning, automated algorithmic decision-making systems, predictive analytics, and related digital technologies. And what we're seeing is that these technologies are integrated into identification documents, facial recognition systems, ground sensors, aerial video uh, surveillance drones, biometric databases, asylum decision-making processes, and in many facets of border and immigration enforcement. So that essentially in many parts of the world, the border is increasingly a digital border. And it's important for us to think about the way that digitization reinforces racialized forms of exclusion such that digital borders, um, basically the world we're being delivered is one that is one of digital racial borders. In the report, um, I offer examples of technology that is used to advance explicit racism and xenophobia against ref um, refugees and migrants, including social media platforms that are used to mobilize attacks against these groups. But I also highlight different forms of digital uh, border regimes that disparately harm refugees and migrants on the basis of their national origin, their immigration status, their ethnicity, um, their race, um, their religion, their, and, and, and all of these other categories. So for example, I, I spotlight digital border surveillance, which is a practice that you, the European Union through Frontex has been doubling down on in a number of different um, ways. And I also um, highlight um, some examples from Germany, which I thought I would end on since this is a talk to an, an audience that might primarily be um, in Germany. And in the report, I highlight how um, pursuant to the German, uh, to an amendment to the German Asylum um, Act, asylum seekers who are unable to produce a valid passport or equivalent document have to just surrender all data carriers, right? So they have to give up their mobile phones, but also their laptops, their USB sticks, and even fitness um, wristbands. Um, along with the login information to all of these documents, such that the data that's collected from them may be read out by authorities to confirm identity or nationality, including um, also in, in asylum um, proceedings. And this law also allows immigration authorities to share this data with other government agencies, such as security um, authorities or intelligence um, services. And, and as I mentioned, they may also be read out in asylum um, uh, context. And what you see is that this invasive data extraction um, for personal devices, devices in Germany is, is unprecedented and targeted only asylum seekers, asylum seekers who typically tend to be ethnically, racially, racially religiously specified um, um, groups. And according to the, the submissions that I, I received, some of these policies would were justified or made policy by a background of racist and xenophobic assumptions that were at play in the political discourse that kind of framed the adoption of these laws. The submissions that I received further highlighted that these data carrier evaluations, so after all of this data has been um, collected and analyzed, it actually proves to not be very useful in verifying identity or national origin of asylum seekers. So the justifications that are being used for its deployment um, aren't necessarily holding water, and yet you have these gross breaches of, of privacy and raising a whole host of other concerns that target different groups on the basis um, of national um, origin. So I'm going to um, end here, and I had hoped to say a little bit about how the racial justice uprisings of the um, Northern Hemisphere summer may relate to some of the things that I've said, 
But I think I'm just going to turn it over to Catherine for us to transition to Q&A so that it's just not me talking and I can weave some of those comments um, into, into my, my responses. But thank you very much for your attention. And I hope I've been able to convey some of the concept, complex ways in which um, racial justice and racial inequality considerations have to be more front and center in human rights discourse, especially when we're thinking about migrants and refugees. Great. Thank you so much, Tendai. And that was really a, a tour de force. Um, I, I think what I really like in your talk and in your scholarship is that you're, you know, very clear about the uh, uh, ideas that you're drawing on. So I guess there was critical race scholarship um, and very much kind of historically grounded accounts of colonial histories of migration control. Um, so with that in mind, I guess my first question was just asking about uh, this concept of racial aphasia, obviously, you know, it's it's very uh, powerful because it is extraordinary that there isn't a louder anti-racist um, discourse in relation to migration control. Um, and But your scholarship has really opened up this area. And I just wondered what gave you the intellectual courage to take it on? I mean, when we think about the migration as decolonization article and you very quickly breezed over it by saying, and then I offer a different account of sovereignty. Uh, which you do in the article, but you know, not many relatively junior scholars take on those big questions. Just wondered, yeah, intellectual courage was the the expression that came to mind. Interesting. So I, I shouldn't be surprised that you're asking me something that I don't think I've ever been asked in the in the context of talking about this work. But something that I think is is really um, important, and I wish I could say that it came from a place of, of kind of deep bravery and courage, you know, the, the motivation to kind of speak more forthrightly about these things. But it more came from a sense of anger and exasperation, you know? So I studied international law in, in law school and studied human rights law in law school as well, and came to both frames as kind of emancipatory. I was really interested in, in the potential that international law and international human rights law specifically had for addressing oppression in the in the real world. And it was only when I was in practice, I graduated from law school, I actually started practicing. I never thought I'd become a legal academic because I was like, why, you know, anyone who cares about the world, why would you become a professor? Um, and while I was in practice, I was stunned at how incapable the law was of recognizing what was actually happening in the world and how it actually required that we fit our clients into boxes that didn't make sense. So I think anyone who's practiced refugee or asylum law knows exactly what I'm talking about, where you're confronted with individuals who've experienced such complex hardship but you have to boil it down to stereotypical dimensions that are acknowledged by the law and make the case in a way that can sometimes do harm to the groups that on whose behalf you're trying to advocate. And I was doing work in, in South Africa at the time, and, and this was around 2008 when there was xenophobic backlash against refugees and migrants there. And it was so evident that it was racialized. It was black Africans rather than you know, European, white Europeans or, or whites, even from even white Africans, for example, were spared from xenophobic backlash. And I was curious about what international human rights law said about the racial justice aspects of that. And I carried that curiosity into academia with me. And as you know, Catherine, given your expertise as well, in our field of international refugee law, and even in the context of international migration law, the scholarship up until I think very recently, the legal scholarship has just failed to name 
race failed to name colonialism. I mean, and I'm speaking broadly, but there's other people's work like Chantal Thomas and many others whose work I, I would say my work builds on and, and Twail scholars in, in particular who do this work, but there was just a resounding silence in terms of how migration was described and the relationships between former colonies and, and, and kind of former colonial powers were described in ways that kind of belied my own personal experience. I could talk at length about the history of my own family's migration. You know, I have family who moved around in Southern Africa during the colonial period without documents, but who moved around depending on their jobs, worked side by side with British nurses in in mines in, in Lusaka, for example. But when it came to getting British citizenship, you know, race essentially was the factor that determined who was eligible for British citizenship and who wasn't, even though lived experiences were exactly the same. Anyway, short answer is it was outrage and, and a sense that if we're going to take seriously legal frameworks, they have to be able to speak to the experiences of people who live under those um, frameworks and they have to be able to account for them. And it's not that as though the kind of twail CRT analysis is the only valid analysis of international law, but you cannot grapple with international legal theory without those analyses because they bring to the table things that are just fundamental. So I think I was so outraged and kind of eager to, to, to think about what it might mean that I didn't really even fathom kind of the danger that might be associated with it. And you're right, I did it fairly junior, I did it pre-tenure, but was fortunate to be at a school where people were very encouraging and, and kind of weren't going to hold it against me that this is the way that I went. Sorry, really long-winded answer to say that I think it's about what motivated that work and what motivates a lot of my work is looking at the field and, and feeling massive gaps that exclude people whose experiences are like my own. So no, I think that answer was fascinating and really revealing for the listeners too. And I I, I take your point um, exactly that you know these lenses help us understand oppressive frameworks and human rights violations. Uh, one thing that really struck me reading the Digital Borders report is the other side of it, the duty bearers, like who, whose obligations should we be thinking about? Because you mentioned they're identifying practices of the BAMF, but it wasn't only that, obviously, private actors, corporations, um, and the very tight relationships between some states and commercial actors come through really in this technological arena. Um, and I just wondered if you had any observations about that. I mean, either yeah. you issue recommendations in the report to UNHCR or to IOM, mm -hmm. um, based in Los Angeles, is the tech industry listening? I mean, there, it just seemed to me the duty bearer question is really screaming in that report. Um, it absolutely is. So in this report and then also in the report that came before it, which is about, so I did a report on race and tech generally and then did one that focuses on race, tech and borders specifically. And in both, I highlight how the, the kind of the commercial interests and the economies that are structuring the tech industry are very intimately related to the racialized forms of exclusion that are taking place. So when we're thinking about race and tech in particular, and we're thinking about social media platforms as a way in which extreme content is directly connected to greater profits, right? So that the business model itself has built into it a kind of 
ever increasing exposure to extreme content in ways that raises serious concerns from a human rights perspective. And that means that we can't just be focusing at content moderation if what we're trying to do is get rid of extreme content um, online. And then in the border enforcement context, you're right to point out that the report refers to work of, of people, of, of commentators who've described the kind of the border industrial complex, how there's all of these military and other commercial um, industries that really profit from the digitization of borders and a, a digitization that has a disparate impact on groups so that it's not just about the states, it's, at a, it's about the big corporations and the small corporations that are profiting from delivering this universe um, uh, to us. International law, you know, the duty bearer is the, the nation state. And in, in many of my reports, what I'm trying to do is, is argue that states have to, um, at national level and at the regional level, impose legal obligations on corporations and move beyond corporate social responsibility as the frame. Because right now, a lot of the governance of AI issues is in the discourse of ethics, right? So everybody should be doing the right thing rather than doubling down on legal um, obligations. And so I think, I think you're right that the duty bearers, we need, as international lawyers, we should be insisting on nation states holding private corporations legally accountable. The big problem is that some of the most powerful corporate actors are more powerful than nation states, right? They're super sovereign. And so when you say to me, a Silicon Valley listening to, you know, my reports when they come out, I would say yes or no. And no, you know, on the one hand, they care about their public reputation. So part of the work is trying to make clear how their profits may suffer from some of this information um, coming to light. But I really worry because it has to be about disrupting their business models rather than just encouraging them to be more humane in the way that they engage with racialized forms of exclusion. And I think part of the problem is that too much of the public thinks of tech as neutral or even more fair, right? When you think about um, asylum adjudication that's done by some kind of algorithm versus an individual, there's many people who might say, well, let's go with the algorithm so there isn't any bias, not fully understanding that algorithms just reproduce the inequalities and the inequities, sometimes in even more severe forms than human decision-making um, can be. So I think the private actors really huge thing we need to focus on. And there's a number of different barriers that I think make it hard to think about how we make that a tractable issue. Great, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at hurdy-school.org.